Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us on one of the 40 radio stations, iTunes, YouTube, or the show website, CREshow.com. Today our show is called Show Me the Money, right? We're always always looking for money, right? So today we'll talk about the latest sources, the rates, terms, and, and underwriting standards for various types of properties, uh, borrowers, and price ranges. We'll share some best practices, we'll share some market intelligence, and some resources to power your funding requirements. Please welcome my first guest, Steve Renna. He's president and CEO of CRE Finance Council. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Michael, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Well, we appreciate that. And uh, first of all, tell us briefly about the CRE Finance Council. Sure. We are the global trade association for the commercial real estate finance industry. Our members are comprised of lenders of all different types, whether they're balance sheet lenders, banks, life insurance companies, uh, whether they are um, securitized lenders, so the CMBS lenders, or whether they're specialty lenders and have private capital sources that like private equity funds. Uh, in addition to that, our members include the investors in CMBS bonds, commercial mortgage-backed securities bonds, as well as investors that are investing in different types of loan portfolios. And in addition to that, we have a broad array of the servicing community, your standard uh, mortgage servicing companies, master servicers, special servicers, and all different types of companies, law firms, accounting firms, analytical firms that uh, support the industry overall. We have 280 member companies in the United States. Uh, We are also global. We have an affiliate in Europe as well as Japan. Okay, excellent. And let's talk about the CMBS world. You know, there's been a lot of talk of the maturity is going to be coming up in uh, this year and the next year, and uh, that some of these properties may have been bought at the height of the market. Uh, what do you guys see happening there? Is there enough money to fund these deals? Are the values back strong enough? Are we going to have any challenges? Right, Michael, that's a really good question. And just by way of background uh, for your listeners, 2005 through 2007 was the peak of issuance by CMBS lenders. And also it was at the time when the values of properties were at their highest. Uh, After the liquidity crisis, the CMBS industry virtually disappeared. And there were questions for a couple of years as to whether the industry was going to come back as a product type. Uh, It has. Fortunately, over the last couple of years, it's grown at a very steady pace. From three years ago, we were at about $45 billion a year. Uh, and then the year uh, after that, about $85 billion. And now we're over $90 billion a year in 2014. The forecast for 2015 is to be about $110 billion a year. To put it a little bit in perspective, at our peak in 2007, we were at $230 billion of issuance, which was Uh, obviously a very frothy time but when you look at it you have 2005 through 2007 where you have significant amount of CMBS maturities that come due 10 years later because they're 10-year terms on the CMBS so in 2015 we're facing 100 billion dollars of CMBS maturities loans that have to be refinanced that were financed at a time when property values were at their frothiest 2016 we're looking at another 110 billion and in 2017, $137 billion. So this is a significant amount, and the concern that people in the industry have had over the most recent years is when these maturities start rolling and coming due, will there be enough financing capacity in CMBS to be able to uh, 
handle those maturities. Certainly in some cases, there are gonna be loans um, that values just simply have not come back far enough to get refinanced in full and there's gonna have to be some working out of them. But I think to answer the question so far that people in the industry have had about whether we're gonna be able to meet this maturity wave, the answer so far is yes. There's ample capital in the marketplace uh, it, because of interest rates are low and also the relative value of real estate is is strong so there is plenty of capital that's into the cmbs put into the cmbs industry we have over 41 conduit lenders right now so they feel that there's a number of conduit lenders believe that there are opportunities in the marketplace to refinance this and of course the economy has improved uh, values have improved in assets so they've come back. Borrowers, because of low borrowing costs generally, uh, have been able to uh, develop reserves that they could put into properties if there's some borrower equity that needs to be uh, infused in order to get a refinancing. So overall, we are in, in pretty good shape so far at the start of two, 2015 to meet the maturity requirements. Okay. And Steve, these loans that you mentioned for the three years are what, about $300 billion or so. What are the state of these CMBS loans now? Are, are some of these loans in trouble? Uh, you know, I, I don't quite know what the percentage is for each year, but certainly some of them are in trouble. Uh, and what's happening, too, it's, it, that's an opportunity, but it's a, a bit of a concern, is that there's a high rate of defeasance that's going on right now. Defeasance basically means that you're able to prepay a loan before it comes mature, uh, as long as you substitute for that loan U.S. Treasuries as collateral. So borrowers are looking at the opportunity to refinance properties now that are going to maturing, be maturing in the next year, two or three years. Uh, and that is taking the better quality loans out of the pool because those that are able to, re, you know, defease are ones that obviously have stronger values. And it is leaving a little bit of uh, the weaker loans in the pool. You have a bit of adverse selection. So there is gonna be a concern that you might have a bit of a higher concentration uh, in the pools of loans that are gonna have uh, more trouble getting worked out. I think what I would say though, is if a loan doesn't get, uh, doesn't get refinanced and has to get worked out, the distressed community, I know this is something you and I have just uh, talked about discussing as well on our call in the distressed community you know we've had a lot of experience recently in working out distressed loans understanding what it takes to do that finding the capital sources that are necessary in order to uh, uh, to acquire the loans and then reposition them uh, so I think if we're if I guess to sum it up I would say if the industry isn't in position to refinance a loan if the loan isn't ready isn't refinanceable I think the ability to work the loan out is all, also pretty good at this point yeah, I guess we've all gotten pretty good at that, right, over the last several years of dealing with these distressed loans. Well, <laughs> the what school hard knocks, right? <laughs> right. What is, so yeah. what about opportunities? You know, there's plenty of investors out there that, you know, would like to, to get into some op distress opportunities, so there might be some opportunities for them. You know, the, it is uh, the chase for yield right now, and the uh, the, the wide yields that uh, investors were accustomed to getting uh, back when, if you had capital and there there were a lot of loans that needed refinancing, and you were one of the rare capital sources, you were in good position to get high yields. Uh, but right now, because of the amount of capital that's in the market, uh, it makes it much more challenging to 
to get yield. So, uh, but there are still opportunities for those that are, are trying to work out the, in the distressed side. If you have capital that's available and you have the know-how and how to uh, work an asset out and you can move quickly, you have opportunities. I think the thing that people in the, at that side of the sector have to keep in mind though is that the banks have substantially worked out their distressed pools and sold them off and got them off their balance sheet. Uh, so a lot of the distress that has existed in the market has been worked through. So there's not a lot of it right now. I think there will be more in 15, 16, and 17 as we do get those CMBS loans that come from due for maturity that aren't going to be refinanceable. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And uh, yeah, I think we've run through a lot of our REO properties with a lot of our clients and, and funds and things. And, uh, you know, and I think, too, the values over the next two or three years looks like they may improve. So there may not be the opportunities for the distressed buyers. And, and hopefully there is plenty of, of money available. Uh, like you said, a lot of uh, lenders and investors chasing yield. So what are your concerns about the finance market? We've had to take a break here in a minute. But quickly, what sure. are some concerns? Well, the concern is, is it's a highly competitive finance market right now. You have many lenders, you have a lot of investment capital flooding into commercial real estate. I think some of the reasons for that, it's just a good relative value relative to corporate bonds. Uh, when we've gone, as we have in the last five years, through a terrible uh, economic crisis and a liquidity crisis, investors are looking f to invest in assets they can see and feel, and real estate is one of them, obviously. So it's been very attractive investment, as I said, has good relative value. The downside of that is that you get so much capital coming into the market, it becomes very highly competitive. And so lenders, in order to compete, uh, have to have to stretch perhaps their underwriting standards and also maybe stretch a little bit on the amount of proceeds or the rate that they're that they're charging. So you get um, you know, loans that are made that may uh, lack uh, all the discipline that you would want in a particular loan. And so you may be sowing seeds for the future, uh, uh, for future distress if you get too frothy in the uh, lending that you're doing. All right. And I think our lenders like to know, our lenders, our listeners, borrowers and lenders like to know more about that. So we'll be right back more with Steve Renna. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today our show is called Show Me the Money. My guest is Steve Renna. He is CEO and President of CRE Finance Council. And uh, Steve, we were talking before the break about underwriting, and I think a lot of borrowers would think the underwriting is still pretty stringent. Uh, but uh, I guess you're talking to the lender side a lot. Uh, what's going on with underwriting right now? Well, as we were talking about in the first segment, uh, credit is clearly deteriorating. I think it's a function of uh, competition in the marketplace among lenders, but also the fact that you know we, after the financial crisis, you know the underwriting standards were ultra conservative, and we're moving away from those. And to give you a couple frame of reference points, uh, property supply right now, so new supply coming into the market of different assets is below 4%, which is very low. And most of that is in the multifamily sector. So you, you still have a very constrained property supply. Loan originations right now are still down 53% below the 2007 peak. 
uh, and loan to value ratio as kind of another metric. Uh, it was at about 71% on average in 2007 and in end of 2014, it was at 66%. So yes, there is some deterioration of loans uh, uh, and borrowers uh, are probably still thinking there's some stringent provisions that are being applied to them. But for the most part, uh, you are credit is loosening and that is a bit of a concern for the industry because you don't want to, as I said earlier, be kind of sowing the seeds of problems in the future. Uh, but on a relative basis, we're nowhere near where we were in 2007. Right. And let's talk about new supply for a moment. I mean, I think that's one of the things that have really helped the commercial real estate world, right, is the lack of new supplies really helped the fundamentals. What about financing for new supply? It seemed like uh, a few years ago that uh, financing for a new project was very difficult. Where are we now? Sure. You know, financing for new projects, you know, typically you had your your traditional lending sources being banks and life insurance companies or the CMBS industry or, or the agencies, meaning the uh, Fannie Mae or, or Freddie Mac. Uh, but now you're seeing a growth in private equity generally. So non-bank lenders are coming into the marketplace more and more. These are your classic private equity firms on one hand, finding that real estate, which five, six, seven years ago was sort of a pedestrian asset for them, is now an asset they very much want to embrace in their portfolios, both from an equity side and from a debt side. So we have growth in the industry from a lending source in the private equity side uh, of the equation. In addition to that, you have two new alternative financing sources that are really becoming quite the rage right now. One is called EB-5 financing, and this is a government program actually designed to um, uh, raise money by providing visas. So the government says to a foreign investor, you can get a visa to have a green card in the United States if you provide $500,000 of investment in the United States that produces a certain number of jobs that's on a particular scale. And it turns out that this program is very well suited towards construction financing for real estate because when they're doing the calculation of the jobs that have to be created, temporary construction jobs, as well as any permanent jobs that exist as a result of real estate construction, count in that calculation. So there has been a tremendous amount of money coming in through this EB-5 program, about 85% of it actually is coming from China, that is funding development projects right now. Uh, there's about $4 billion of EB-5 financing expected to uh, come into the United States in 2015. And it's something that's being used by developers across the country, but some of them are the most significant developers that we have going on that we, uh, there are in the country with some of the most significant projects. For example, related companies using probably $600 million of EB-5 financing for the well-known Hudson Yards development project in New York City. Lennar, Durst, Ratner, all major development companies are using this EB-5 financing. So it's a new alternative form of, of uh, financing that's very low cost for developers uh, and it's working out very successfully. Listeners, obtain the source for this EB-5 money? Where can they find it? 
You know, it's a complicated project. What I would suggest you do, a lot of law firms are very good at navigating clients through the EB-5 process. Uh, it's something that requires someone to be a student of to understand how it works. There are many aspects of it and levels, and you need to know what you're doing. Uh, but I would say start with uh, start with a law firm that you're using to find out more about EB-5 financing. They're all on top of it. Okay, excellent. And let's talk about another source for funding that we're hearing a lot about, and that's crowdfunding. Yes, crowdfunding, quite a phenomenon, basically, you know, using the internet to be able to reach smaller investors, lower income relative to uh, uh, high income investors that have only had access to commercial real estate finance projects through kind of privately placed deals. But crowdfunding, basically, through the internet, you have these platforms that have been established to be able to solicit kind of your average investor. Uh, into real estate projects with small unit prices for the amount of the investment. Now the crowdfunding initially when it was set up was kind of designed people looked at it saying, hey, do you want to, if you want to invest in your community in a redevelopment project, maybe, uh, you know, on Main Street, you know, crowdfunding can help put together the money for that and we'll get, uh, you know, units of contributions from different people and we'll be able to finance something that's in your hometown. It's really mushroomed beyond that considerably. Uh, because of the ability to raise um, fairly significant sums of money quite quickly through the internet, you have larger real estate companies that are looking for you know, supplemental financing as they're doing their capital raises or the financing raises and going to the crowdfunding platforms and using them to provide that source of financing. So you have your traditional lenders providing X amount, maybe you'll have a second loan providing a, another amount, and crowdfunding can come in and provide yet an additional amount of financing uh, at a fairly low cost as well. So it's very efficient, very low cost, uh, and it's something that uh, the real estate finance industry is taking a, a very hard look at, and you have a number of companies within our association that are um, using crowdfunding and believing that it's gonna be a significant um, way of the future for financing. Wow, that's interesting to hear from the CRE Finance Council, and uh, and it's also interesting when you think about retail investors. If they're investing through crowdfunding on the equity side, you know they may be uh, there. There may be returns there they'll adjust. But if you think if they're financing in the financing, if they're investing in the financing part, maybe they've got a first party deed to your debt, right? Maybe they have mm-hmm. a set six percent return that they can feel comfortable right. with, right? Right. And retail investors, you know, often aren't comfortable taking a lot of risks. So if you know you have equity in front of you, that's a, that could be a good place for you to be. Yeah. Well, let's talk quickly about the uh, federal policies that are affecting commercial real estate mm-hmm. financing. Yeah. You know, right now, Congress is in uh, a mode where there isn't a lot getting done and they probably like it that way. Uh, there might be steps in the legislative process where you may see issues like some reform to Dodd-Frank. I know that is something that uh, uh, the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee are looking at, but I think that's going to be a, a fairly slow process and probably one difficult to get along over the finish line. Uh, and you always have discussions of GSE reform, but again, I just don't think there's really a lot of will to come to a, an agreement at this point. Although, if Fannie and Freddie, which have had in 2014, did not have good years and they from a uh, income standpoint if they start having to draw on their lines of credit from treasury uh, since they are in conservatorship uh, to be able to function that could reignite a little more the GSE reform talk but for the most part on those two fronts uh, 
probably not a lot of movement going on. Yeah, well said. Well, Steve, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on Show Me the Money. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's FIUonline.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Thanks for being with us. Today our show is called Show Me the Money. My guest now is Tom Walsh. Please welcome Tom. He's Senior Vice President with Granbridge Real Estate Capital. Tom, thanks for joining us again in Studio One. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. We appreciate you being here. And uh, first, I'd like to talk about the various sources for money today. I mean, if you have an apartment complex or a single tenant net lease property or or maybe you're an owner-occupied business, there's better sources for money, right? So let's start with multifamily. Uh, what's the best source for good money for financing there? Well, the multifamily industry is kind of the broadest market for financing because it includes the two big 800-pound gorillas, Fannie and Freddie, that don't play in any other market. On, on the financing side, there's various options in multifamily. Probably your, your, your first option is usually going to be Fannie or Freddie. If you have a brand new, really high class deal, the life insurance companies will get in and, and battle toe to toe with Fannie and Freddie for that business, even at, at top leverage. Um, and they'll win. They'll win some of that business. They'll beat Fannie and Freddie on pricing. Uh, by and large, though, if, if you're not in a high quality, high, real, real high quality new kind of deal, the life insurance company is usually going to be a little lower leverage than Fannie and Freddie. You know, Fannie and Freddie will go to 75% routinely on refinances. They'll go to 80% on acquisitions of property. And they'll do everything from the, the, the top of the line, highest quality deal down, I would say, probably to the B minus deal around there or so. Other than that, uh, the, the, the lower quality stuff at low leverage is quite often handled by the life insurance companies. Mm. Um, if you need higher leverage on, the, on say, the, the, the lower quality levels, um, that's really where the CMBS industry steps in. And uh, they do a fair amount of multifamily. Uh, by and large, uh, on, on the multifamily side, the CMBS industry kind of does what the other ones won't do. That doesn't imply at all that, that, that they're doing bad deals or bad business, but you know, Fannie and Freddie have kind of decided what their product segment is mm-hmm. and a few years ago made the decision to kind of move up out of the C-class property, and the CMBS industry stepped into that void, and, and that's kind of where they play. Okay. Well, that's good information. What about single-tenant net lease properties? If you have a CVS or a Dollar General, what's the best sources there? Really two options there. Um, there's a there's a body of lending called CTL lending, um, which is available if you have an investment gate credit tenant, CVS, Walgreens, what you just mentioned. Among you know, there's there's probably a hundred investment grade tenants out there, maybe more, and and the CTL industry will take care of those. Their way of lending is, is kind of unique in in that they lend totally against the lease. All they really care about are the terms of the lease and the credit behind the lease. They don't really care about the building. They don't care about the location. They don't care about the borrower. To them, that lease is just a promise to make 
X number of rental payments over a period of time, and they'll finance that. Um, on, on some investment-grade tenants, but pretty much all your non-investment-grade tenants, uh, that's where the life insurance companies step in. And you know they'll do your uh, you know your your Rite Aids your I'm trying to think of some non-investment um, Verizon people like that um, where those are very viable single-tenant properties but they're not investment-grade tenants so the CTL business really can't play with that the life insurance companies will step into that void and and, and they'll play in that market life insurance companies by and large in doing that are are not going to be pushing leverage like the CTL lenders will. Um, and what leverage will CTL do? CTL will do up to 105. It just matters how your numbers work. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't care uh, really about the economic value of the property. They only care about the income stream. Uh, now I'm exaggerating, saying 105 percent. It's not at all unusual to find a 92 percent loan, though, in the CTL world. The life insurance companies they do care about value. And they will, you know, they'll be down in the say the 75% or lower usually, um, and they're actually really most comfortable playing like in that 65% range or so. Okay. And what about owner occupant loans? If a business has their own property they they own, what's the best sources for them? Um, a lot of that business is done in the bank, still done in the banking business. Uh, there are some life insurance companies that do owner occupied property. I would say the majority of them don't, but there are some that do. And that involves a different type of underwriting. Obviously, you're underwriting the credit worthiness and the viability of a company versus versus an income stream and the real estate involved. Uh, the real estate's important with the life insurance companies, but the source of repayment in that case is really not the real estate. It's the it's the company. So the underwriting is a little different there. I, I would say, though, the majority of the owner-occupied stuff around the country is really still done by the banking industry. Yeah. And the banks love to, to do loans for them, too, because they also have the banking relationship. Yeah. Right? You know, you know they'll, get, they'll get the banking relationship from that yeah. company. They may be able to factor their accounts receivable. They may be able to provide them insurance services. They can really you know, kind of become a full-service financial institution for that client. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're aggressively out there looking to loan on uh, owner-occupied business properties. So, so check that out if you have one of those properties. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on financing on Show Me the Money. I'm Michael Ball. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Realnex, providing a comprehensive suite of powerful commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low cost. Visit Realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today our show is called Show Me the Money. My guest is Tom Walsh, he's Senior Vice President with Granbridge Real Estate Capital. And uh, Tom, I'd like to talk about rates. You know, the, the Fed's sort of uh, indicating that they're going to be slowly rising rates. Uh, let's talk about rates uh, today. Uh, what are some rates uh, typically right now, say, on, on the multifamily area? On the multifamily side, you know, the Treasury has fallen back down a little bit recently. And we have seen a lot of the rates for uh, for most multifamily deals dropping below four once again. Uh, for the last, say, two or three months, we've been kind of vacillating around four, going at 410 down to 390, up to 410. We're probably back in most cases a little bit below four, <clears throat> as long as you don't have a forward component in your deal at all. Um, the CMBS side uh, is 
maybe just a little higher than Fannie and Freddie. The the rate range and Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the CMBS lenders is a fairly narrow range right now on multifamily. Um, the only, I would say, uh, exception to that would be a lower leverage deal on a really high quality property because I think the life insurance companies would just kill themselves in lowering the rate down to win that deal. And you could, you could easily end up uh, with where rates are today, you could end up down in a three and a half, three point four 3.4 range. But that's going to be the exception to the rule. Most, most time you're going to be up in the say, you know, 380 to 410, maybe to maybe 420 max range. How long can you lock in these rates? Um, most of the rates we quote are, are generally assuming 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what most Fannie and Freddie loans are done at. That's what most life companies are done at. In the CMBS world, it is the, it's the term that sells the best, executes the best on their side. So the great majority of CMBS loans are done at 10 years. You know, if you go to five or seven, generally your rate's going to drop somewhat. It drops more with Fannie and Freddie and the life companies than it does in the CMBS world. Um, that's that's kind of just the way the math works there. Um, but you could you conceivably on a five-year deal with the Treasuries where they are today, you could be down in the you know three to three and a quarter range possibly right now on apartments. Are any of your clients looking to? maybe pursue a CMBS loan uh, or some loan that might be assumable down the road? Um, most of the loans we do are assumable. Mm-hmm. Um, even one, even a, a life insurance company loan that may start out being where there's no language for assumption, that's usually something we can negotiate in, mm-hmm. at least a one-time assumption. Mm-hmm. Fannie and Freddie loans are readily assumable. CMBS loans are readily assumable. I won't lie to you and tell you that's an easy process. Um, and it can be a little long and a little arduous, but it gets done eventually. So most of the stuff is assumable, and that is important to a lot of people, especially making loans in what we would still call historically a low-rate environment, because people perceive that they've added value to their deal by putting long-term financing on it, and where that value would manifest itself would be someone buying it and saying, I'm willing to pay a little more for that property because it has nine years left on a 4.1% 4.1% loan. Right. Um, that's that's kind of especially if you're selling it three or four years from now, and rates have increased. And 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 that's the bet. You know, I mean, we've been waiting, I guess, for about five years now for rates to go up, <laughs> right. and uh, we kind of laugh when we even talk about it now because yeah. we obviously have no clue where rates are going. Um, but I would say there's clearly more momentum for going up than there is going down. Yet I say that at a time where the Treasury just dropped 20 basis points in a matter of a couple of weeks. So. Yeah. But, you know, we've heard uh, Yellen and uh, the Fed talk about uh, raising rates. They've kind of warned us, I guess, that it's going to be coming, but maybe slowly. So look in the crystal ball. Uh, <laughs> give us a guess. I would, I would say slow would yeah. be the operative term. I, yeah. I, I think the, you know, the global economy right now is not doing really well. Mm-hmm. The, the U.S. economy is kind of the exception mm-hmm. to the global rule. But the U.S. economy is also is also doing, I would, if the term would be right, fragilely well. It's like we're doing well, but everyone knows we don't have this huge underpinning under the economy. It's a little bit on the fragile side. I think the people at the Fed are pretty smart people. They don't want to rock that boat at all. I think they feel the need to get the rates off of this kind of zero where we've been for you know a few years now. Mm-hmm. I think it will be a very slow move, though. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe a, a 25 basis point increase per quarter 
something where it takes us an entire year to go up 1%, I think it's more likely to be something like that than these radical upward movements. Remember the old uh, E.F. Hutton commercial where E.F. Hutton would talk and everybody in the restaurant yes. would look over? Yeah. All right, so here's the E.F. Hutton moment. When is that going to start? Is that in September? I would guess, guess? I, that would be my guess, yeah. it, that, that, that uh, it's probably a third quarter thing. Um, <laughs> now, you keep in mind, the, the rate as the Fed deals with the rate is, is basically, it, it, where it affects it is it affects LIBOR. Most mm -hmm. deals are LIBOR-based now. No, no loans are based on the, on the discount rate. That's the rate, though, that the Fed, that the Fed exacts you know, their, their power on. Mm -hmm. But everything will kind of follow that. There is no guarantee, though, that the Treasury will follow in, in lockstep fashion, you know, to the, to, the, to the discount rate. We just have to kind of wait and see how that goes. There seems to be a, a, um, a feeling out there in the market right now that a 3% 10-year Treasury by the end of the year is probably fairly likely. Uh, I, don't, I don't disagree with that other than to say that we've thought that in 2011, 12, 13, and 14, and, and yet we haven't seen that movement at all. So we'll just have to kind of wait and see. You know, we can, it's not something we can really predict accurately or we'd be billionaires. Quick qu answer to this. What are some quotes you're seeing right now for multi-tenant commercial and retail property as far as rates? Um, rates in, on, on the, on the multi-tenant commercial property, industrial retail office, probably I would say ranging lower leverage deals getting down maybe in the in the four maybe a spec below four mm -hmm. uh get up to 75 percent kind of market leverage probably getting more up into the four and a quarter range wow there. those are fantastic rates well, they are they yeah. are All right. well stay tuned we'll have more on show me the money i'm michael bull this is the commercial real estate show we'll be right back Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. We're speaking with Tom Walsh with Granbridge Real Estate. And Tom, I'd like to ask you about some tips for borrowers who, who need some financing. I remember back in the day, I've been in the business for a very long time. We used to take a lot of uh, prep work in prepping a deal. So we get a property under contract and we'd figure out who's going to manage it. We'd get everything together on, on the property and the borrower and the plans and the market. So when we went to lenders, we, we had our act together, right? So what are some tips for borrowers today in, in that regard? I would say the most important thing today uh, is the accuracy of your information. Uh, right now, most all of lending is done on a trailing basis. That means looking backwards whether that be looking back 12 months, looking back three months, looking back six months. Um, we run into some deals sometimes where, where a borrower has not really kept up with that and, and now has to go create that information, which is a big ordeal to do rather than having already done it on a monthly basis. Uh, try to keep as accurate information as you possibly can and have it readily available. Don't wait for your financing time to go and create that. Right. be doing on an ongoing basis, then it's really easy. So, that, so I don't have to go back in my shoebox. No, you know, I need to get the receipts out, basically. You know, uh, One other thing, too, is in this day and age, uh, there's a lot of borrowers coming out of the recession that had issues. And, and, and in fact, it, it's probably more rare for a borrower to not have had an issue. Right. 
during the recession. With the, with the amount of, of data out there on the Internet and social media, the lender is nine and a half times out of ten going to find that information. The best way to handle that is to give it to them yourself. If you give it to them with, a, with an explanation as to what happened and how you handled it, the lender can get their arms around that and say, okay, you know, it, it seems like they, they did the right thing. Uh, a foreclosure on itself, uh, there's a million foreclosures. You know, it's how you handled it. You know, it, it, it's the details of how that worked. You still have a borrower out there, what I call kind of an old-fashioned borrower that is a little close to the vest on the information they give out. I'm telling you, the lender is going to find it. And if they find it and you haven't told them about it, now it's much more difficult for you. Now it kind of brings your character into question a little bit. You know, why didn't they disclose this to us? What else are they hiding out there? It creates a negative situation. So really be upfront about issues you may have in, in lots of detail, references if you have them, put it all out there. It'll serve you better in the end. Okay. And we talked earlier in the show about the various sources for financing. So should borrowers look to these various sources? I know if you're handling a, a, a request for a loan for somebody, you're going to these various sources for them. Uh, is that important? Our job is to know who can fit the borrower's needs. Um, if, if the borrower is looking to, to sell this property in two years or the borrower is looking to hold it infinitely and turn it over to their kids later, um, those create situations where a different lender group may be the appropriate thing for that borrower. Some, some big-time borrowers, they, can, they know that stuff. Uh, most of them don't. That's why they use people like us. You know, we'll create the situation that, that, that best serves what they need. They just have to give us, you know, the, the, the story up front. It's amazing sometimes that, that we'll be weeks into a deal before we found out something that was important to the borrower that we had no idea. Yeah. They never really mentioned that, it, that this was an aspect that was important to them. Try to put that stuff on the table up front. You'd be, you'd get much, much better product in the end. And what if they're not going through a, a company like yours that is, is um, sourcing different lenders? What if they're just going to one bank for a loan? Should they go to several banks, I guess? You know, there's always a danger in only going to one lender and, and, and not testing the market. Uh, the testing of the market's kind of what we do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you have a relationship with a lender that you trust, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're shopping for dollars, I, I would be leery about going to, to one lending source and okay. only one. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you being in Studio One. It was great to be here again, Michael. Thank All you. All right, and thank you for joining us out there. Be sure and join us next week. We'll have uh, Dr. David Lynn on the show, and we'll talk about his new book, Advisor's Guide to Commercial Real Estate. Um, it's a great book. Check it out. Well, be sure you lead, learn, and laugh, and join us every week for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty Commercial Advisors, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. Realnex, a comprehensive and powerful suite of commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low price. Visit realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L. NEX. FIU, Florida International University. Earn your master's in real estate in as little as 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit Excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. 
Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit CommercialSearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com.